3: everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, And as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most s, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? Uh, look, I'll be honest. Uh, my life is utter chaos right now. But of the two of us. Sure. I'm probably doing better. Yeah, I sound like I've swallowed sandpaper and I'm <laughs> I'm aware of that. Also, if it sounds like I'm in a wind tunnel... It's because there is a heat warning on and we, we gotta keep the AC on or else we're gonna, uh, we're gonna implode over here. Um, yes. yeah, you know, here's what's up. People are like, ooh, you, you had a concert, you sang your voice raw. Actually, no. Actually, no. <laughs> here's what it, my voice actually feels fine. It's that I did so much aggressive headbanging. that every muscle in my neck shoulders upper back face is like a rock and so it's Mm. everything is just so tight that it's like pulling on my vocal cords
4: oh jesus
3: yeah it's fun Mm. it's fun this is this is um starting a rock career uh you know past the age of 25 this is what it does to you Look, I'll say to you what I say, anytime my husband goes, "Oh god,
4: how is my back sore?" This is 40. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's it's becoming detrimental to my own health because anytime I feel an ache or a pain where I'm like, "Oh, you should see someone." I just go, "Nah, it's cuz I'm 40." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I got a bum knee now. That's nah, just cuz
3: I'm 40. Get it checked. Get it checked. Oh. Yeah. get it checked, especially if it's I a recurring know. problem. Who has time? God, yeah. But you know what I did earlier was uh, there's a little product they don't sponsor us. I'm just a big fan called Robaxacet. <laughs> they're only available in Canada, um, and us Canadians down here in LA, we we uh, we hoard them and we trade them amongst ourselves, of course, um, like cigarettes in prison, a hundred percent like that. And it's, uh, it's, of course, ibuprofen and a muscle relaxant. And for me, they make me loopy. doop So earlier, I uh, I took a couple. And then I just took a series of, of selfies as I got more and more stoned. <laughs> and it's, the last one is pretty great. Sent me into a hot nap, hot nap oh, for, nice. for about two and a half hours. And I'll be honest, prior to that, I couldn't even talk at all. So Oof. thank you to the good people pushing the muscle relaxants over the counter in Canada. You're doing God's work.
4: Yeah. I get, uh, did groceries today. Uh, just on the shelf in the pharmacy.
3: Yep. There they you are. Know?
4: So it's not like it's it's bad enough it has to be behind the counter.
3: You know what else I like about Canada? Ha. <laughs> so many things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> If you feel like you're getting a yeast infection, you can buy yourself a Diflucan over the counter. They trust you. Down here in the States, they make you go in and get tested to confirm that it's a yeast infection. And to that, I want to say, I have lived with this vagina my entire life. And I absolutely, without a doubt, can tell you what a yeast infection feels like. Don't need to have my judgment tested. Don't need it. No! It's oh. ridiculous. I just think that's the, one yes. of the most ridiculous misogynistic patriarchal things. I mean, there's so many, but that one gets me. It's like I don't have time to go to the doctor to get a test done. Mm. To like just let me go and get the thing to yeah. solve the problem. Like
4: can can you do something else with this? Like is this a you can turn it into smack or something kind of drug? <laughs>
3: This is 40. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, you know, those yeast infection pills, those antifungals, they're going to get well, you real good and high. I'm just saying,
4: like, is I'm not re- excusing it either way, but I'm just saying, like, is that their reasoning?
3: I that, don't like, think so. You can do
4: something sinister with them. Their sinister feels better than smack. <laughs>
3: Both are great. No, no. <laughs> I think it's just that they don't trust women to be able to have any autonomy or um, be able to tell you what's wrong with their bodies. I think it's that simple. That's insanity. Because this is the thing: Are you supposed to take those pills all the time? No. Um, is there a rush of women in Canada taking so many antifungals that they're having like you know health implications? Don't think so. I don't think so. I think we know we know when to hold them and we know when to fold them and we know when the Thanks. Bernie means a yeast infection. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that.
4: Yep. Thank you. I for absolutely that. will. I like that a lot.
3: Yep. But yeah, that's the nice thing. Again, I, I enjoy being able to uh, just be able to go to a, a pharmacy in Canada and just grab what you need. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah I get that. Yeah. I get that. Look, I'll say it. I'll say it. Um, we did uh, last, I'm going to say probably in the winter, maybe late winter, early spring, earlier this year, kids cough medicine, gone. Like everybody was hoarding it. To the point where if a pharmacy would get it in, they'd hide it behind the counter and wait until you come up and ask. And they wait and they decide case by case basis if they're going to give it to you. Wow. Because they were like, so many people are buying these, whatever. And so when we went today, um, part of the stuff I was getting uh, as part of my regular groceries was just to make my soon to be college bound uh, child a small like medicine kit of various things in case he needs anything while he's away. And while I was in that department, I was like, oh, they got the NyQuil again. Grab some. And my husband's like, "Do?" but nobody's sick. We don't need it. I'm like, they're going to be. School's going to come back in. Everyone's going to start getting sick again. And uh oh, this isn't going to be available. Get it now.
3: Yeah. The things you can count on in life, death, taxes, children getting sick.
4: Children are always sick. Yeah. Children are disgusting. And I'll say this. <laughs> I say that. Look, I, I love my kids uh, to the end of the earth. Uh, we are in the process of of preparing one child to go to college. So we don't have enough bedrooms in our home. Uh, we did. We specifically moved to this house so each of our kids would have their own bedroom. That was our dream. Right. Uh And then we started this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I didn't really have a place to record. So I started recording in our bedroom, but it's so much larger and sound wise, it wasn't great. And then also sometimes our records go like sometimes we're two, three in the morning. Yeah. And that's not fair to make my husband stay up until we're done the record. So we we made a comment to one of our kids about like if if that room was available, you two would have to share a room. And the two younger ones did like a yay about the thought of sharing a room. And we're like, really? So one day while they were at school, we just shoved their shit in the same room and went surprise. They were so excited and they've still loved it, but they're kind of ready for separate rooms, but we still don't have that extra room. Uh, So we have decided because the oldest has the larger bedroom of the 2 We're going to put the two of them down in that bedroom because they get more space, the two of them. And then the older one gets cramped in a smaller room because he'll only be here every other weekend or whatever it is. He'll only be visiting uh, throughout the school year. He's not happy about it, but whatever. I have told him I will paint the room because it is what I do. You told Um, me you weren't going to do that. You told me explicitly you weren't well, going to paint. Well, here's here's the thing. I'm I'm not painting the one downstairs uh-huh. because I literally just painted it within the last year. Uh-huh. Someone can uh, go back to whatever episode I bitched about that on. I'm sure I did. Um but I I just painted it and I'm like, "Oh, I I can't paint that room again. That's the color you guys are stuck with." But for the teenager to ease him oh. and because those that that room is disgusting because it's had two boys just being gross in there. Uh, Moved a bed, just the gross, like I was scrubbing so many things I didn't think I should have to. Um, That's how I started my day. Move furniture around enough to patch places and then uh, uh, groceries, vacuuming, so much vacuuming in that room. And when we're done this record, I'm going to go sand and prime. <laughs> That's <laughs> ridiculous. I'm on, a, I'm, on a, I'm on a time crunch.
3: I, get I gotta it. I gotta,
4: I gotta I have to have it by a certain date because it's the only time, like, the teenager who's going to be helping lug all the furniture up and down the stairs, because I can do some of it, but I can't do a lot of it. It's going to mostly be him and my husband. He works five days a week, 12-hour days. So I'm like, wow. oh, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, he's he's learning a lot of life lessons. <laughs> I bet he is. 12-hour days are no joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's brutal. Um, but he's making money, and he's happy doing it, and it's his summer job, and away it goes. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 a real, real eye-opener. But yeah. also, I did some uh, psychologist hatting on myself I like earlier this. today. Thank you very much, uh, because I feel like you were the reason for it. Um, and I'd got to the very easy route of why I'm obsessed with making, painting their bedrooms, making sure they're
3: the color that they want. Because you had to be moved around so many times as a child that you never really felt like you had your own space? Close. And
4: oh, maybe, okay. <laughs> and maybe, uh, cause I, my husband is also like, the room is fine. Yes, it's covered in like thumbtack holes and all this. Well, not anymore, bitch. I have... I have uh, mudded those today. I mudded, went for groceries, came back, another bit of mudding, and now it's ready. Uh, It'll be ready for me to sand when I've done this. That's not the point. The point is, um, I was thinking about it. And when I moved, I I mean, I moved a lot, but specifically, it was the move when I was about 12 turning 13. Uh, We moved into this house that it was the 90s. Every goddamn room in that house was pink, like oh god, baby doll pink. Yeah, yeah, every room in the house. And when we saw, like, my parents saw the house and they were like, oh, I don't know, but okay, it's good location, nice house, everything, we'll get it. And they hired a painter, his name was Kelly. He listened to kiss CDs. I specifically have that vision. In my head. He had a red mullet. It's fine. And a mustache. Kiss Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly. Uh, So uh, I like Kiss Kelly. That's nice. (laughs) Um, I also think I only saw him maybe once. So I don't know why he's so ingrained in my brain. But he is. So we came. We saw the house. And I was like pink. And they were like, "We're we're just having the whole thing painted white. And I was like, perfect. And we show up to move in. Every room is white except for my bedroom. And I went, I thought we were painting everything white. And they went, oh, yeah, we told him just to leave your room. I. uh, I didn't really have words in the moment. Uh, It was never expressed to me. Hey, would you like like we're getting it painted? Do you want us to leave your room or not? Because they, in their brains, again, early 90s, they were like, oh, well, obviously, she's a girl. She wants a pink room. Dear listeners, I could not have been more of a tomboy who wanted nothing but blue. I wanted blue everywhere. Yep, But pink, oh, I
3: – to throw another color at you, I saw red. <laughs> no, no, that was too much. The well, you know what is, I'm hearing here is yeah, much like I'm a lady that just wants to be able to choose my vaginal relief product – You wanted to choose your own wall color. And that was taken from you. Yeah. And that
4: that imprinted. Yes, it was the fact, I I realize it now, uh, discussing it with my husband earlier, it's the fact that I wasn't asked. Yeah. And they just assumed, and they were like, meh, it's not worth it to paint this room. And what I heard was, I'm not worth it to have the room be the color I would rather I wasn't even asking for paint it this specific color. I was like, just let it be white like everybody else's. So the fact that it was that way, apparently, that was a core memory for me. (laughs) Apparently. And so, yeah, when we were moving into this house, I would literally put the kids to bed at like eight o'clock at night, drive across town and paint the three kids' bedrooms Like, just paint one in a row and be here till like two, three in the morning. I did that for the week because we I think we had the house for a week before we officially moved in. And I did that so when they moved in, it would be the fun room they wanted. I let the older two pick themes. The younger one was a baby. He didn't know what a theme was. Uh, The middle one picked Space Mario. That's not a thing. (laughs) It's not a thing.
5: Ah, I love that game. But
4: guess what? He came in that room and went, it's Space Mario, because I got Mario decals. I got Space decals, and I put them in such a way so it looked like Mario was in space. And be damned if he didn't think I got a Space Mario room. He told people, he was like, we got a new house. I have a Space Mario room. I'm like, it's exactly what he wanted. So it's a more positive core memory than... uh you know, I'm
3: trying not to have the negative core memories for them. I know they will because you can't help it, but I'm trying. Listen, I think you go above and I'm beyond. Trying. I think you go above and beyond. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. And if they want to argue that, they can come and ride the toe of my boot. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, yep. well,
4: I I go too far. I did say earlier <laughs> to my husband, I went, you know, I shouldn't say this, but fuck we're good parents. <laughs> He's like, Yeah. <laughs> I'm like we are I'm like someday our kids are going to be talking about this with a partner of some sort and that person is going to go you got what when you were a kid and it's like yeah yeah Yeah. we I give too much I give too much
3: I know that but
4: I think in this case it it was just it will ease him into being in a
3: room he's not exactly fond of the idea of being in. Sure. So sure. I think it's just funny to me because in this specific scenario, you explicitly said to me, "I won't be painting." I draw a line. Well, I meant the one in the basement. Oh, I'm so sorry.
4: I I also did say (laughs) I know that meant painting in general. I did say the last time I painted, I will not be painting again. I remember Um, that also. Yeah, I did not recall. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I realized this is a step we would take. We made a joke of like, well, it's a bigger room. They'd kind of each have half the room. Whereas now one's in a loft bed and one's in another bed. So they're literally like on top of each other. And so I'm like this way, they'll each be kind of on a different side. It'll be so much better. I don't know.
3: It's too late now. We've already gone so deep in this. I can't. No, you can't, you can't back out. You yeah. can't back out. Yeah. yeah. You'll get severe tire damage if you back up. <laughs>
4: yeah Oh, I'm fucked either way. Uh, I realize it because based on the, I only had so much time because also I can't have the older one not have a place to sleep because he's working such long shifts and he's exhausted and he gets up before any of us. So I need him to have a good place to sleep. So I can't have him without a room during this process. The other two, okay, but where the fuck do I put them? in order for this to not be a problem. Uh, last night, working, I kind of just worked around so they could still sleep in the room. Uh, but for the next two nights, if you think those kids aren't having a fun camp out in our backyard, you're dead wrong. Well, that, that reminds me of excited. our youth.
3: When we camped out in that um, that tent trailer in our grandparents' driveway. That didn't lock or close properly? <laughs> yeah. It was a predator's dream. We were very yeah. lucky to live. <laughs> we <were>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. But look, just as jazzed as we were then, they are so jazzed about it. Heck yeah. They've been talking about it for days. Remember how hot it was yes. when we did that? Is it super yeah. hot there right now? Uh, we are under a heat advisory, uh, so it's a problem. Yeah. But we don't have a lot of options. But... Our grass is very sensitive, so two days max is
3: the most we can do for that tent. So, oh, so yeah, the sensitive did. grass, yeah. Otherwise, Look, what it breaks, it, it'll it'll turn brown.
4: Uh, that backyard was a <laughs> was a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not even gonna get into what the people before us had done. But it was not a, it was not a yard for children. It was a very small space, and they made it even smaller. And basically, we had to rent a jackhammer in the summer, and we had people come in, and we ended up putting like we did all the jackhammering and stuff ourselves. We
3: talked about that on the show, and we I, did. And I doubted you, and I I ate crow, and I apologized.
4: Oh, that this was what a year ago ish, uh, something like almost two years ago, I think we did it. Uh, my oldest said. He thanks God every day that he didn't, that the type of work he does doesn't deal with jackhammering. (laughs) He remembers that one morning that there was jackhammering, uh, and he hated every second of it. Uh, And then we had someone come in and put sod down. And the amount of money I paid to have that yard done. Yeah. I have babied that grass. I started, I became a person who fertilized every six weeks. I used very specific fertilizers on very specific weeks. I followed everything. And then we had some problems with the grass. I've had to, like, I baby that thing. I go out and water it. And I'm talking, like, I want it done right. So I hand water it. I will go stand out there to, like, hand water. I want to make sure that this grass survives. And of course, if you put a tent on grass for too long, the grass underneath will die. And if that grass dies. <laughs> when I said we have sensitive grass, I mean, I'm sensitive about
3: our grass. <laughs> there we go. I gotcha. I was like, oh, is this like my rosacea? Is this like sensitive skin? I get it. I get it. Well, listen, before we get yeah. into it, what you drinking over there? You got some sort of slurpee um, on the go. Oh, I, I'm, I'm just mainline and slurpee
4: all day, like. After the groceries, because it's so hot, I did get one. And then it was like 80 trips up and down the stairs, taking children's stuff to the new place. Uh, And then I said, oh, I'm going to do this record. But I'm like, I can't get too boozy because (laughs) I've got a full night's work ahead of you. I yeah, this is usually like nearing the end of my day. But I, I still have another few hours ahead of me after this. It'll be great. It'll yeah. be great. By the time we record again, this will have all been a nightmare that's over. And that's what nice to think about. It'll be done. And it'll be great. Well, listen. He'll be happy. The others will happy.
3: We'll all be happy. I've got water on Maybe. the go. Of course. I've got lozenges. Of course. And I do have a Diet Coke. And I know people would say, that dehydrates you. I get that. I also need to be functional. Well, also, and there was a few days- joy. Thank you. There was a few days I didn't have any caffeine and I was like, my head hurts. Why does my head hurt? It's like, wow, because you've got an addiction, Lauren. That's why. Um, So anyway, I had one earlier and it actually made me feel a little perkier. So I might crack into another
4: because that's just how I roll. I respect that. Again, should I have done two Slurpees today? No, but I need to be conscious and it just... Makes me uh hate things a little less. <laughs> it's
3: nobody's business. It's nobody's business what you drink. It's nobody's business. Uh, it's if luck. I want to take a guy to get me a slurpee, it's none of your business. See you I, never. It's not it's not I, great. <laughs> I, I'm having a great time. I don't know about you. Oh. <laughs> well, listen, let's get into it. This episode, we're of course talking about Candy Montgomery. Um, Very, very popular true crime story right now. Uh, But if you're not familiar, do not fret, my pets. I'm going to get you up to date with some info right now. A 30-year-old school teacher was found brutally murdered in a Dallas suburb in the summer of 1980. She had been bludgeoned with an axe more than 40 times. Neighbors were shocked when police arrested the victim's best friend, a stay-at-home mom named Candy Montgomery. Was Candy really capable of committing such a heinous crime? Did her defense attorney outright lie to the jury? And what happened to everyone after the verdict came out? Join us as Christy answers these questions and more, including what the hell went down in that jury room on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. I was just really jazzed to use the word heinous. Oh, that makes me think of um, patron saint Olivia Benson and uh, SBU. Of course. I really just got to
4: get you a... Just a bunch of patron saint candles. (laughs) You do. Harry
3: Styles, Dolly Parton, uh, Olivia Benson. Yeah. Probably Pedro Pascal at this point, too. Just for his day-to-day philanthropy. I mean, just him as existing as a human. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, and Keanu. Of course. Oh, it should also be noted, dear listeners, you'll, you'll care about this. I played my show at the Whiskey A Go-Go in L.A. on the Sunset Strip. And just down the street at the same time, Keanu Reeves had reunited with his band Dogstar and was playing a show. So people have been tagging us in posts about this. And I was like, trust me, I knew. Uh, (laughs) And after their show, they went to the Rainbow Room, another iconic Sunset Strip venue. I went to the Rainbow Room and we were informed as soon as we arrived, we had just missed Dogstar, including Keanu. They had gone for... Um, a drink, maybe some food. I don't know. But yeah, it was uh, passing ships in the night. So close, yet so far away.
4: I think we all would have heard your collective scream. Like, it would have been obviously an internal scream. Yes. But I think we all would have heard it and been like, what's that? You would have felt a ripple.
3: Like, you would have felt like, is that an earthquake? Yeah. No, it was It was Lauren in the same space as Keanu Reeves. Well, some would say a tsunami. hey Oh! <laughs> god we're all vag talk to all badge all the time get over it if you don't like it skip the fucking banter don't give a shit i don't care <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it finally be, happened i like, could be happier
4: happened. with the 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 level of energy <laughs> here today <laughs>
3: Listen, you know what? It's miraculous that I'm here. It's miraculous that I'm standing. It's miraculous that you're here with all of your things you have on the go. So if if I want to rant and rave about my vaginal rights or lack thereof, this is my goddamn place to do it. Yeah.
4: I couldn't couldn't be happier. I didn't think we were going to mention vaginas as much on this show as we do, but... You know, I should have known better. I, we
3: come about it honestly, and to yeah. be honest, it feels like a, an act of resistance to me. We, you know, the, the concept like it's gone through like peaks and valleys over time, right? Like for a while, it was like super, True. super radical and revolutionary to talk about your vagina. That wasn't done; that was taboo. Then for a while, it was like, let's not talk about our vaginas anymore, like. We kind of, we get it, whatever. Now, I think we, we're in a place in society that we should absolutely be talking about our vaginas as much as we uh, so choose. Yeah.
4: So yeah. are we saying the point where it was like, "Uh, we're over it, we've talked about it too much,
3: was like peak vagina monologues? I think so. And I think okay. we had gotten so much progress at that point. Um, not all the progress, but we had had so much progress at that point that it was like, let's not... You know, gild the lily. Let's not gild the vag, That kind of thing. Um, sure. So, but now I think then more then than ever, back. it's uh, it's important that we take back. We take back the, the vagina talk, and I I've, I am unanimous in that. To use Mother Laurel's expression, <laughs> uh, look. If we need to, if we're still searching
4: for a a topic, or like a name for the beginning banter. We can just outright steal the name Vagina Monologues. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah. Something to think about. Oh, God. I know. I can hear them. They're like, I skipped ahead, but not enough. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) We don't care. (laughs) Here you are. Here's the thing.
3: It doesn't affect us.
4: We don't care. This is, and this is just naturally who we are. (laughs) Yes. I I don't think you would like it if we were like, Welcome to True Gramming and Cocktails. Okay. So disclaimer, here's the no, show. I no. don't think
3: you that's need not the light what do. to balance the dark. It's just never been what we do. And I've had two no. separate people stop me over the last week and tell me they only listen to the banter. So there's been a real no shift. That's nice. There's been a real shift. Yeah. Well, it
4: is what it is. I also have to say I feel so gross because I've been sweaty up and down those stairs and I would have showered prior to this. But... You can barely see me, you can't smell me, we're fine. Plus I know I'm getting sweaty later. That sounded worse than <laughs> <laughs> that. It just when I'm coming sanding. back is the
3: thing. When I'm standing,
4: that's what I mean. And the second my arm moves in this paint motion, brr, I'm gonna sweat everywhere, it's fine. Well, I'll shower later. The point is <clears throat> I feel gross, but not as gross. Fucking Candy Montgomery. Get ready, folks. i Can't angry. wait.
3: <laughs> it's rare for you to be... rage about a woman. This is nice. Oh, I know. You know what? We're balancing it. That's why we're talking about our pusses so much, is that we're <laughs> balancing it with the rage against this woman that's about to come. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pusses. Again, this is it. We're taking it back, folks. Yeah. I like that a lot. We're taking
4: it back. Ah, so disclaimer. This episode will contain mentions of suicide and descriptions of graphic violence, so trigger warning for those who need it, which is the lightest trigger warning I think we've had in a while. Yeah. So, Betty Eileen Pomeroy was born January 9th, 1950 in Harper, Kansas, to Bob and Bertha Pomeroy. Betty was very active in school, taking part in various plays and the student council. She was described as a popular girl who dreamed of becoming a teacher. Betty attended Southwestern University in Winfield, Kansas, where she was working towards a teaching degree when she met Alan Gore, a graduate teaching assistant. The couple became close, and once Betty was no longer in his class, they started dating. People were surprised by the pairing to the point where it was said people could understand why Alan fell for Betty, ah, but they couldn't understand why Betty fell for Alan. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, even more surprising is that Alan and Betty were married on January 25th, 1970. The couple then moved 156 miles, or 251 kilometers, north to Manhattan, Kansas, where Alan finished his master's degree at Kansas State University. Three months after Alan graduated, they moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico, where Alan got a job with an electronics company. Soon after, he went on a six-week-long business trip, which greatly upset Betty. She didn't like being on her own, and according to the book Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, while Alan was gone, Betty had a one-night stand with a fellow college classmate.
3: Interesting.
4: Two days after Alan returned from the trip, Betty confessed to the affair, and the couple remained together. Betty graduated from New Mexico State University in the spring of 1973, and the couple moved to Richardson, Texas, where Alan got a job at Collins Radio, which later merged with Rockwell International. Betty got a job as a substitute teacher at an elementary school, and she sold Avon on the side. In July 1974, Betty gave birth to the couple's first daughter, Alicia. Two months later, Betty got a job as a second grade teacher. However, it was a struggle as she had been diagnosed with postpartum depression and a variety of illnesses. Maybe there should have been a way that would make it so women didn't have to go back to work so soon after giving birth. But
3: I don't have time to get into that injustice. And I don't think tonight's the night for me either, to be (laughs) honest.
4: Yeah, not with the vag talk we've already let into. Exactly. So, in February 1977, Alan decided to transfer to a position that involved less travel. And two months later, the couple purchased a home in Wiley, Texas. Betty got a job teaching the fifth grade, and they started attending the First United Methodist Church in Lucas, about seven and a half miles or 12 kilometers north of Wiley. It was at this very church that Alan and Betty met Candy Montgomery. Candace Lynn Wheeler, known as Candy, was born November 15, 1949 in Georgia. Her father was in the army, so the family moved around a lot, including stops in Washington, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, France, and West Germany. Candy was the type of girl who was easily bored and always looking for excitement. When she was 14, she ran away from home simply because she was bored. She was found the next day. At 16, Candy fell in love with a senior named Chris, who told her he was planning to propose. Candy's mother refused to let the engagement take place, and Candy later admitted she wasn't really that upset about it. (laughs) In January 1970, Candy moved out on her own for the first time while working as a secretary at El Paso Times. Despite only being 20, this was the moment that Candy decided she wanted to get married, so she started going out on multiple dates, hoping to find her future husband. However, nothing seemed to work out, as she said one guy wasn't educated enough for her, and the other didn't make enough money. Then, due to an increase in her rent, Candy got a new job as a, se- as a secretary at a wrought iron furniture manufacturing plant where she met coworker Marie Montgomery. Marie told Candy she had a son who was single, so Marie set up a date between them. James, who went by Pat, was about five or six years older than Candy, but a bit on the dull side. In fact, Candy described their first date as excruciating and the most boring date of her life. Wow. Yeah. But somehow, when Pat proposed just two months later, Candy said yes. And the couple was married October 6, 1970. Soon after, the couple moved to Boulder so that Pat could finish his degree at the University of Colorado, For those who are interested, and I know it's no one, uh, Pat's dissertation was titled, and I quote, Electromagnetic Boundary Value Problems Based Upon a Modification of Residue Calculus and Function Theoretic Techniques. To quote Candy earlier, excruciating. (laughs) (laughs) Wowza. Mm. Anyhow. So Candy was miserable living in Colorado. She didn't like the weather. She didn't like the altitude. She was forced to get a part-time job at an insurance company, which went against her dreams of being a housewife. By 1973, they moved to Richardson, Texas, where Pat took a job at Texas Instruments, working on top-secret military radar projects. And that's the moment, dear listeners, that I learned Texas Instruments wasn't just a calculator manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> I Wowzer. I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. So while Candy had initially said she wanted eight children, she decided to have her tubes tied after two. Uh, she had Jenny in September 1972 and Ian in, in October 1974. And while neither Candy nor Pat were very religious, they decided to start attending church for the sake of their children. In 1977, they moved to Wiley, where they attended the First First United Methodist Church in Lucas and met the Gore family. They sang in the church choir together. And when Jenny Montgomery and Alicia Gore became best friends, the families just started spending more and more time together. It was Uh, said that the Gores and the Montgomery's were only close simply because their children were. In July 1979, Betty gave birth to the Gores' second child, Bethany, and unfortunately, Betty was prone to postpartum depression, which caused a strain on her marriage. However, Betty and Alan took part in a marriage workshop through the church, and by June 1980, they were closer than ever. They even planned a trip to Europe, as a second honeymoon. On June 13th, a week before the trip, Alan had to fly to Minnesota on business. Betty was disappointed because, again, she hated being alone. But she was excited for their upcoming vacation, as it would be their first child-free vacation in four years. Since Betty didn't like when Alan went out of town, they had a rule that Alan would call her off and on throughout the day just to check on her. He left for the airport straight from work that afternoon, and when he got there, he tried calling the house, but got no answer. Once he landed in Minnesota, Alan tried calling Betty again, but there was still no answer. Before he headed down to dinner, Alan got the phone number for his next-door neighbor from Information and called Richard Parker. Fun fact, Richard was the one who sold that very house to Alan and Betty three years prior. Richard described Alan as quiet and unsocial. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the kind of neighbor you want? Yeah.
3: Yeah, Maybe it's just me.
4: Alan told Richard he was worried and asked if Richard would go knock on the door to see if Betty was home. Richard went over to the house, but got no answer. Alan then called Candy Montgomery, who said she had stopped by the Gore house earlier that day because their daughter Alicia was spending the night. At her house. Candy said Betty was fine and suggested maybe she went to a friend's house. Uh, Candy said, quote, she did act like she was in a hurry for me to leave. Alan called Richard again to ask if the car was in the driveway. Richard told him the car was there and there were lights on in the house. Around 11 p.m., Alan called Richard for a third time, asking him to try and get inside the house by whatever means necessary. Richard got Lester Gaylor, who was the next-door neighbor on the other side of the Gores, and they went to the Gores' house at 410 Dogwood Street. Richard and Lester discovered the front door was unlocked. They walked in. They immediately heard 11-month-old Bethany Gore crying. They ran towards the sound, found the baby in her crib. Richard took Bethany over to his house and left her with his wife, asking her to call the police. When he returned to the house, he and Lester walked through the house, noting blood smears on doorknobs and walls. Then they saw light coming from under the utility room door, which was situated between the living room and the garage. When they opened the door, they discovered Betty's body lying on the floor covered in blood. Betty Gore was just 30 at the time of her death. There was blood on the walls a pool of blood around the body that was half an inch to an inch thick. There were blood spatters and smears on the freezer, up the walls, everywhere in that room. There was so much blood that at first glance, the men thought that Betty had shot herself. The first officer on scene arrived at 11.18pm. His name was Johnny Lee Bridge Farmer, and he had been a police officer for less than a year. But before you think that is me leading into what a terrible job he did because of lack of experience, I actually don't have anything negative to say. (laughs) I will not be making complaints about the police today. I'll, of course, be making complaints about other people later on, but shockingly, not about the police. So the young officer arrives at the scene, which was so brutal that it was described as something straight out of a horror movie. More officers arrived, and when Alan Gore called the house, one of them answered and said that Betty appeared to have been shot and that she was dead. Police later reported that Alan handled the news with an eerie calm that made them immediately suspicious. Alan then hung up and started calling family members. He called Candy Montgomery at 1130 p.m. to give her the news and to ask her to keep Alicia a little longer. Candy then called different friends and said, quote, Have you heard about Betty? She's been shot. That's just something to keep in mind. Uh, while word got out through the gossip grapevine that Betty had been shot, upon closer inspection, the officers noted large, deep gashes to Betty's torso, extremities, and face. In fact, the injuries to her face were so severe ...that her right eye was missing. On the floor near the body was a three-foot-long axe with a wooden handle. Based on the wounds to the body, the axe marks on the walls and floor... ...it was soon determined the axe was the actual murder weapon. So before we get into the autopsy, let's look at the crime scene itself. In the utility room where Betty's body was found... ...police found a pair of sunglasses that had been broken and kicked under one of the appliances... There was a full bloody footprint, which appeared to be like a small flip-flop, sandal, however you want to... Oh, God, how does how do Aussies say... Aussies call them thongs, don't they? Yep. There we yep. go. I'm trying to cover all my bases here. Uh, since the axe handle was wood, it wasn't possible to get any fingerprints from it. However, police found a bloody thumbprint on the freezer. Due to the freezer's surface, they weren't able to lift the print... They did, however, get a very detailed photo of it. Police also discovered blood and hair in the shower, which indicates the killer had tried to clean themselves up after the crime. And based on the smearing of the blood in the utility room, it appears the killer also tried to clean the crime scene, but just gave up partway through. They collected photos of bloody footprints and the bloody thumbprint on the freezer, as well as blood samples, strands of hair found in the victim's hand and 175 strands of hair in the bathtub. I know, gross. Uh, All but four of those hairs were found to be a match to Betty. Two were determined to be animal hairs, likely from the family dogs. The other two, though, were unknown. A fingernail was also found on the floor in the living room. During the autopsy, the medical examiner noted that Betty had been struck 41 times with the axe, including 28 blows to the head alone. Based on the amount of blood, it was believed that Betty's heart was still beating for 40 of those blows. She may not have been conscious for all 40, but she was definitely still alive granted 41 is still overkill and betty likely would have died from her injuries after just a few blows there was no sign of sexual assault the official cause of death was of course massive head trauma it was the first murder in wiley in living hi- in living memory and the absolute rage that the killer seemed to feel during the intense struggle and the incredibly brutal scene was Shocking to the community. Police were able to rule out robbery as they had found a $20 bill just sitting on top of Betty's dresser. Police didn't believe the crime was premeditated based on the signs of a struggle and the choice of weapon, although they did consider if the axe was chosen because one was used in the movie The Shining, which had just been released in theaters 21 days earlier. At the Gore's house, police found a newspaper in the living room lying open to the movies section, which featured an article about The Shining, and there were drops of blood on that page. Police also questioned if the murder was inspired by another movie that had been released just 35 days prior. The first installment of the Friday the 13th franchise was released May 9th, and of course the crime occurred on Friday the June 13th. Oh wow, right. But police believed the violence was personal and they were quick to rule out a random killing by a stranger. And if it wasn't a stranger, then where is the first place police will look? The victim's husband. Alan said that he arrived at work around 8:30 that morning and that he remained there until he headed to the airport in the afternoon. Police were able to confirm this. However, since there was burnt coffee in the kitchen of the Gores' home, police wondered if Alan killed Betty before he left for work. But the bloody footprint found at the scene was too small to belong to Alan. In fact, based on the size of the print, police thought the killer was likely a woman or a child. The idea that they genuinely thought that it was a child. I mean... I mean, when I think child, I think eight. But I assume they were thinking like teen. But Right, right. And speaking of children. A five-year-old girl in the neighborhood told police she was playing outside on June 13th. Around 11 a.m., she saw Candy Montgomery leave the Gore's house. The girl recognized Candy because... The girl was friends with Candy's daughter. When Candy left, the girl decided to see if Alicia could come play. She knocked on the door, but no one answered. The girl said she was surprised no one answered because she could hear the baby inside crying. If the child was correct, that means Candy might have been the last person to see Betty alive. So Candy was brought in for an interview on Sunday, June 15th, which also happened to be Father's Day. Candy said that on Friday morning, she was at the vacation Bible school. Betty's daughter Alicia had slept over the night before, and Candy's daughter Jenny had asked if Alicia could sleep over the Friday night as well, since the family planned to go to the movies. Candy said that she left the Bible school around 9.45 a.m. and headed over to Betty's to ask about the second sleepover. Candy said when she arrived, Betty was drinking coffee and sewing something. They spoke briefly about the new puppy that Betty got before heading inside. Betty agreed to the sleepover, and Candy offered to take Alicia to her swimming lesson that afternoon. Betty gave her a handful of peppermint candies, saying that those were the reward Alicia was given if she put her face in the water during the lessons. Candy then told Betty about a new wallpaper and paint service that she started with her friend Sherry. They called themselves the Cover Girls, which is just enough of a pun. I might be charmed by it. Yep. I, I mean, it was the 80s, so... Ah, shit. Yeah, I guess I'm charmed. Candy left one of her new business cards on the coffee table before going into the utility room to retrieve Alicia's bathing suit, while Betty headed to the bathroom to grab a towel. Candy said she went into the bathroom where she washed her hands and combed her hair because her new perm wasn't faring well in the Texas heat. After about 15 minutes, Candy left and went to Target to buy some Father's Day cards. When she looked at her watch, it read 10.15 a.m., but when she asked someone else the time, they said it was after 11. Candy realized her watch had stopped and she was running late. So she quickly headed back to the vacation Bible school, where she picked the kids up and took them to Walmart to buy a Father's Day card for Pat. She drove Alicia to her swim lesson at 2 p.m., and at 4:30 p.m., Candy, her two children, Alicia Gore, all sat in the car in a park in the parking lot of Texas Instruments and waited for Pat to be done work. Then they drove to Dallas, where they planned to buy tickets to the 7:30 p.m. showing. Of the Empire Strikes Back. Great choice. Which had been released May 21st. May 1980 was apparently a huge month for cinema. Is, <laughs> yeah. Is, is my point. The Montgomery's plan was to buy the tickets, grab some dinner, and head back to the movies for 7:30. But when they were buying the tickets, they discovered the show at 5:15 still had tickets available so they decided to go to the earlier show and just get dinner after. Candy said she didn't suspect anything was wrong with Betty until Alan called her around 8.30 p.m. asking if she knew where Betty was. She said Alan later called her at 11.30 to tell her about Betty's death and to ask her to keep Alicia at her house. Candy was very cooperative throughout the interview and even agreed to give her fingerprints, When asked what kind of shoes she was wearing that day, Candy said she wore blue tennis shoes and even offered to bring them to the station if they needed them. She said she would do anything she could to help with their investigation. Despite the evidence that they had and the belief that the killer was likely a woman or a child, the initial prime suspect was Alan Gore. Police brought Alan in for an interview on Monday, June 16th. Why did they wait so long if he was their first prime suspect? I don't know. So maybe I do have a complaint about the police in this, but I'm letting it go because I don't want to be that in this one. It's not the focus. That's not the point. So Alan told police before he left for work, he got into an argument with Betty because her period was two weeks late and Betty was concerned she was pregnant again. Due to the struggles that Betty had after both of her previous pregnancies, she was terrified of being pregnant again so soon. Their youngest was 11 months old at the time. Alan said that after their conversation, he tried calling her off and on all day, but never got an answer. His interview lasted a couple of hours. The police asked about his business trip. They asked about Betty's best friend, Candy Montgomery, they asked about the church marriage retreat that helped Alan and Betty during their problems in their marriage. They asked if the baby's bedroom door was normally closed. They asked if the garage door was normally open. At this point in the interview, the autopsy results had not yet come back. So police didn't have the ability to officially rule out sexual assault. So they asked Alan if Betty ever had an affair. Alan said yes. Yes. She had a one-night stand back in 1971 uh, when they were living in Las Cruces, but he said as far as he knew, there was nothing since. Police then asked if Alan had an affair. He said no. Alan was fully cooperative throughout the interview. However, police were quick to note that Alan remained calm and just very non-emotional throughout their investigation. Everyone grieves differently, but for a man to not react in any way after his wife was brutally murdered is very suspicious. But Alan's alibi checked out. But the day after his interview, Alan called Police Chief Abbott at 6 a.m., racked with guilt, because he had lied during the interview. Alan now admitted to the chief he had, in fact, had an affair. It lasted nearly a year. Who was the affair with? None other than Candy Montgomery.
3: Snap. Oh, snap. Well, listen, let's take a quick break, get a drink, hit the can, and we're going to be back with more on this truly brutal and insane uh, true crime story of Candy Montgomery. Back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, we're, of course, discussing the Candy Montgomery case. Uh, In that last act, Sharky licked my eyeball at one point, (laughs) (laughs) which Mm -hmm. was, with that Velcro-y tongue, uh, an experience I never wanted, never wanted, never needed. Yeah. But I digress. Where are we at?
4: Well, we're at Sharky as a feminist. (laughs) That's where we're at. Which Ugh. couldn't be happier. Just in the eye? Yeah. Don't need that. Don't need that. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I'll take any love I can get from mine. Still nothing. She's she's just not. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. She is the most spoiled animal on the planet, but she's currently huddled up in a towel on the floor like a street cat. And she looks like she's huddled in from the cold. It's like, first of all, we're in a heat wave, lady. Calm down. But second of all, like a scrap of towel on the floor. You have so many lovely beds, so many cat things you could lay
3: on. It's classic. Ah, That's who she is. Anyhow. You know what else is classic? Secret affairs. (laughs) (laughs) More on that. Listen to my hit single, Now I Know.
4: Oh, if you want to start making your music a bit true crime themed, We we have no reason but to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about it anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, good God. Well, Secret Affairs, that segued beautifully. There you go. Oh, God. So, Alan admits to having an affair with Candy. The police chief said, you know what? We knew about the affair. Candy told us already. She actually hadn't told them, but they told him that so that he wouldn't tell Candy and warn her before the police were uh, able to speak with her. That's smart. It is smart. Again,
3: I guess I have to praise the police (laughs) in this one. Anyhow. It happens sometimes. We do, again, when the praise is due, we we give the praise. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, So we're going to talk about the affair. The
4: Gore and Montgomery families met sometime approximately the fall of 1977 when they both moved to Wiley, Texas. In the summer of 1978, during a church volleyball game, Candy and Allen went for the ball at the same time and collided Candy privately told her friend Sherry that prior to that, she hadn't been attracted to Alan. But when they bumped into each other, Candy was immediately drawn to Alan's, quote, masculine smell. Not a fan. Not a fan of that. Uh, And if that volleyball game was anything like the volleyball scene in Top Gun, I get it, Candy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can't mention volleyball without mentioning... Volleyball from Top Gun. Why was he in jeans? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, there was so much denim in that. It just didn't make sense. I guess yes. it did, because it was the 80s. But at the time, Candy had been depressed and her had told her friend Sherry she wanted some kind of intense sexual encounter that could only be described as fireworks. So Alan's the guy, right? Anyhow, no offense, Alan, but offense, Alan. Anyhow, (laughs) somehow Candy thought that Alan would be the one to make that happen, and even though they'd only known each other about nine months, Candy approached Alan privately and just bluntly suggested they start an affair. And I'll say, bold move, but also, as Betty's friend, bad form, Candy. Alan was surprised by the offer, and despite being married told her he needed some time to think about it. Fucking Alan. The answer is no, Alan. If you're unhappy in your marriage, get out of it. But when you're approached with an offer to start an affair, the answer is always no. But while Alan and Betty had the picture-perfect marriage on the outside, they were clearly struggling. Not only were they not having a lot of sex to begin with, but Betty suffered from various illnesses, which meant they weren't having they were having sex even less than usual, and Alan was starting to resent her for it. Then in the summer of 1978, they started fostering an eight-year-old boy named Danny. Uh, the boy had apparently been abused by his parents. Danny refused to listen to anything that the Gores said. He constantly picked on their daughter, which caused a lot of strain between Alan and Betty. Eventually, they had to give Danny back to the state, and around that same time, they started discussing having a second child. Betty wanted to time it perfectly so that she would give birth in the summer so she wouldn't have to take time off work. Unfortunately, by trying to plan out the pregnancy, that meant the sex was now very clinical and void of any sort of passion. And when Betty became pregnant in the fall of 1978, you'd think Alan would take it as a sign from above that an affair was a bad idea. But instead, Alan called Candy on November 15th, which was Candy's 29th birthday, and told her, you know, he was interested in having an affair. They met in the parking lot of an auto repair shop the following day, where Alan gave Candy a birthday card that read, and I quote, For the last of the red-hot lovers. And inside the card was a bag of red-hot candy. First of all, number one, I fucking love those red-hots. I used to buy them all the time at the Loaf and Jug convenience store when I was a child. Second, um, I just... How else to put this? Ellen, grow the fuck up. Why, like, would that be a silly kind of sweet card to give a partner or spouse? Sure, I guess. But to the woman you literally just agreed to have sex with and had yet not had sex with, stop it, Alan. God, be better.
3: Well, it's interesting, like, the red hot lovers. It's like you haven't even, nothing's happened yet. How do you know if it's red hot?
4: Oh, he's just assuming. Writing a story. (laughs) which you think we would respect him for because we love to write a story we do we definitely do so during this shady meeting they drove to a nearby tea house where they you know talked about their respective partners and various church stuff and then they outright planned their affair they agreed emotions could not be involved it would have to be strictly physical. Uh, so they decided they would start uh, December 12th. <laughs> so weird to me. I know. I don't get it. Uh, so on December 12th, Candy dropped her kids off at school, packed a picnic lunch that included marinated chicken, salad, cheesecake and white wine. And she drove to the Continental Inn, which was near Allen's office in Richardson. They had lunch. They had sex, they took a shower, went their separate ways. And while it wasn't exactly the fireworks that Candy had been hoping for, she continued to see Alan for months. Every two weeks, they would meet at the Como Motel to have sex. Soon, they started spending more time just talking about their lives and laughing together rather than having sex. And not so surprisingly, Alan and Candy fell in love. Just two months in, Candy told Alan her feelings were getting too deep, which was probably a sign to end things, but they didn't. Alan even started writing Candy love letters. Months later in June, Alan suggested, ah, maybe we take a break because Betty was close to giving birth. What a gentleman. (laughs) He didn't suggest they end things, just that they put a pin in it. Alan allegedly told Candy he really wanted to work on his marriage, and Candy was devastated. Betty gave birth to the couple's second child, Bethany, on July 2nd, and unfortunately, due to Betty's postpartum depression, things between her and Alan didn't get any better. So by late July, less than a month later, Alan got that affair back going again. However, this time, it wasn't as much fun as Candy was kind of emotionally detached and Alan felt intense guilt over Betty. One night, a few months in, Betty tried to have sex with Alan for the first time since Bethany was born. But Alan was so tired from an encounter with Candy earlier that day that he turned Betty down. Betty was hurt and embarrassed and immediately fell into a depression Two days later, Alan met with Candy and told her they needed to end things officially. Alan then enrolled himself and Betty into a church program called Marriage Encounter, which involved basically groups of married couples socializing. And there was also a retreat where the couples were given private time with a counselor. Alan said the retreat brought them closer together. I wonder if Alan... um, I was surprised by how I worded that. Uh, I wonder if Alan only putting his dick in his wife as opposed to another woman is what actually helped with that. <laughs> but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> surprised myself with that. I love that. I love it. I love it. Sometimes just a different energy
3: when you're writing. Oh, Yeah.
4: I just or when you're starting no, uh, off the show
3: with barely any voice. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> vagina.
4: There we go. Now Thank I messed with the people who tried to skip vagina earlier. Ah, <laughs> uh, so Candy claimed she wasn't upset about the affair ending because the sex wasn't as exciting as she'd hoped. The affair ended in October 1979, and in early November, Candy started another five or six week long affair with a man named Richard. Candy then called Alan to ask if he felt the marriage encounter program would work for her and Pat. She also said that uh, she was struggling to get over their affair and that she was miserable, which is interesting because Candy, you literally just said you were so cool with an ending. It was totally fine. Somebody was lying. Anyhow, (laughs) I'm not an expert, uh, but by this point, You were clearly mentally and emotionally checked out of your marriage. Candy, no amount of counseling is going to save you. Just. Just get out. Yeah. Uh, Then Pat found a love letter Alan had written to Candy. But instead of confronting Candy, he called Candy's friend Sherry to ask her if it was true and if it was over. I hate confrontation as much as the next person. But in this particular situation, you ask your wife, Pat. Candy later spoke with Pat and swore the affair was over. The couple then planned a family vacation, which they decided they would treat like a second honeymoon. Was this what led to Alan and Betty planning a second honeymoon in Europe? It's possible. After Alan admitted to the affair, he was brought in for a second interview on June 17th. He was asked <clears throat> uh, if either of them had been planning on getting a divorce, and Alan said Candy told him she didn't love Pat anymore, and she was planning to get a divorce once their children were grown. What a sad existence to just be like, well, I am going to leave my husband, but not for 15 years. You know what I mean? Like, just to go, to be at that point and be like, nah, I'll just wait it out. Oh, God. Uh, but Alan was adamant that he wasn't planning to leave Betty. Alan asked if Betty knew about Alan was asked if Betty knew about the affair and he said she never indicated that she knew. but he said if she did, she likely wouldn't have said anything. Alan, if you think by any reason like by, by some for some reason that you two were equal because she had a one night stand and you fucked her best friend. For like a year and a half. Sir. Like what? She would uh, she would learn about the affair and you'd be like, oh, well, you had one. So she wouldn't be upset about it. She wouldn't be upset. Oh, Alan, she would have been upset. So when asked, Alan outright said neither he nor Candy had a reason to kill Betty He then agreed to take a polygraph test, which he passed. And yes, I know polygraphs aren't reliable. I'm just providing you with the information that I found. Since Candy had not previously mentioned her affair with Alan, she was brought in for a second interview on June 17th. When asked if her husband Pat ever had an affair, Candy said, quote, oh, Pat wouldn't do that. And when asked if she ever had one, Candy did fully admit to having sex with Alan. She admitted to becoming attracted to Alan after a church volleyball game and even admitted she was the one who approached him to suggest the affair. She told police about the motel hookups, the private picnics. Candy said that Pat didn't know about it at first, but he had found a love letter. He was angry, but then, you know, didn't dwell on it. Didn't dwell on it. Candy admitted uh, she didn't want the relationship to end, but she knew that it had to. She said she was not intimate with Alan after October 1979. And just like Alan, Candy Candy was also asked to take a polygraph, but she refused. When police checked Candy's alibi, one of the parents at the Vacation Bible School said that Candy left that day around 9 45 a.m. and returned after 11 they said she was a little more quiet than usual but otherwise seemed completely normal the other parent also pointed out that when candy returned she had changed her clothes and was now wearing a shirt with long sleeves and a high collar which was surprising uh, given the heat of the day After Candy's second interview, police compared Candy's fingerprints to the photo of the bloody fingerprint found on the freezer at the crime scene. It was a match. They also noticed that Candy wears a size 5 shoe, which matches the size of the footprint found at the scene. And according to Alan, the axe was always hanging in the garage just inside the door, so it would have been easily spotted by anyone who had ever been in their garage before. Candy was officially arrested on June 27th. During the strip search, police noticed bruising all over Candy's body and a cut on her toe. Her arrest shocked the neighborhood. Candy was a pillar of the community and seen as everyone's best friend. She hired defense attorney Don Crowder, who told her he knew Candy didn't commit the crime and that the police were just trying to pin it on her shockingly candy responded quote but i but i did do it <laughs> i mean oh i guess boy. now now's the time for honesty candy so well done for that so yes candy outright admitted to it and if that wasn't dark enough shortly after the murder candy was one of the neighbors who brought food to the grieving gore family <sighs> Oh, boy. So that's a thing. Uh, The trial took place in McKinney, Texas in late October 1980. Don Crowder's opening argument outright admitted that Candy Montgomery did murder Betty Gore. However, Don claimed Candy acted in self-defense. And for those screaming, 41 blows with an axe is not self-defense. You're not alone because same. That is absolutely how I feel. But we're going to get angrier about other things. Um, So on October 23rd, Candy took the stand. By this point, her hair had been straightened and highlighted, which gave her like a really soft appearance. Uh, She gave her account of what happened on the morning of June 13th. Candy said that Betty wasn't expecting her until noon. So when she arrived at 10, it seemed like... Betty had just put the baby down for a nap. Candy said she was disappointed because she was hoping to play with the baby during her visit. I'm going to stop her right there and tell anyone who is going to visit someone with very young children if they said they just, that their kid just went for a nap, do not. Tell that mother that you're disappointed, even if you mean well without realizing it. You are making her feel like a bad parent for making a decision about her own child. If you want to see the child specifically, make arrangements ahead of time. You know, like how you were going to be there at noon and then showed up two hours earlier. Anyhow, Candy says she's disappointed the baby is sleeping. Then here's the gore's recently got a new puppy. Candy played with the puppy briefly before going into the kitchen with Betty, where Candy mentioned the second sleepover and taking Alicia to her swimming lesson. Candy also mentioned her new decorating business. Candy said she was about to leave when Betty asked if Candy was having an affair with Alan. Candy said, quote, no, of course not. Which kind of implies that you think it was unthinkable to have an affair. Of course not. Betty pushed further. Candy admitted that, yes, she did have an affair with Alan, but it ended a long time ago. Technically, about eight months. But what do I know? Candy said that Betty walked out of the kitchen and returned calmly holding an axe. Betty told Candy that she didn't want to see her ever again and she couldn't have Alan. Candy repeated the affair was long over and said, I don't want him. Betty repeatedly said she didn't want to see Candy again. Then she leaned the axe against the wall. She told Candy to get Alicia's swimsuit off the washing machine in the utility room while she went and got a towel. Betty then gave Candy a handful of peppermint candies from a bowl on the fireplace and told her they used them as rewards for Alicia during swim lessons. Candy wrapped the bathing suit in, a, in the towel placed it in her purse, along with the peppermints. As Candy started to leave, she apologized to Betty, who flew into a rage and shoved Candy back with both hands, causing Candy to fall into the utility room. Betty just kept repeating, you can't have him, over and over, and then added, quote, I'm going to have a baby, and you can't have him this time. Betty raised the axe, which caused Candy to scream at the top of her lungs. When Betty brought the axe down, it bounced off the linoleum and struck Candy on the foot, causing the cut, which the police discovered after Candy's arrest. Candy also claimed she was hit in the head. Candy said that she grabbed the axe by the blade and be- and just begged Betty to stop. The women pulled back and forth on the axe with Betty kicking Candy in the legs. Candy finally managed to get the axe away from Betty, who then bit Candy on the knuckle? Candy said she pushed Betty back, raised the axe, and brought it down on the back of Betty's head, causing uh, Candy to drop the axe and step back. Candy said she ran towards the living room, and just as she was about to open the front door, Betty ran in, ...and threw her body against the door. Again, remember, these are what Candy claims happened. Candy begged Betty to let her go. Betty said she couldn't. Candy grabbed the axe, and somehow the women ended up way back in the utility room, circling each other. They shoved each other around, and somehow Betty regained control of the axe. Candy again begged Betty to stop, telling her she didn't want Alan anymore... Then Betty put a finger to her lips and shushed her like she was being loud in a library or a child was screaming and a mother just needed a second. Just a simple shush. And Candy just snapped. Candy grabbed the axe and started hitting Betty. She said, I didn't think I raised it and I hit her and I hit her and I hit her. And I hit her. Candy said the only reason she stopped, because she hit the point of utter exhaustion. Now, just a couple of things. uh, Before I continue, Candy said the dogs were barking and that she screamed at the top of her lungs. If that's true, why did no neighbors report hearing anything? Why didn't Candy continue to scream as much as possible to attract attention? What if, and I'm just speculating for the sake of conversation, what if Candy, who was bored in her marriage and missed sneaking around with Alan, what if Candy saw that Betty and Alan were taking a European trip together and she learned that Betty was pregnant for a third time? What if Candy got jealous and thought that Betty was living the life that Candy wanted What if Candy snapped, grabbed the axe from the garage, and they struggled before Candy killed Betty? A doctor testified to seeing bruises on Candy's chest and legs, as well as cuts on Candy's toe and head, so the bruises definitely seem consistent with some sort of struggle. But my question, which I'll never get the answer for, uh, is who grabbed the axe first? The defense's case relied heavily on the idea that Betty learned about the affair between Candy and Alan. But did she really know? Alan said he certainly never told her. And in a letter that Betty wrote to her parents, which was postmarked the day of her death, Betty mentioned her, quote, close friend Candy Montgomery and how grateful she was for helping uh, care for Alicia over the last while. So, if Betty knew about the affair, why would she still refer to Candy as her close friend? Is it possible the confrontation over the affair was just a story that Candy made up to avoid prison? Due to the number of blows, I agree the murder was committed in a blind rage, but it just feels to me like it was more likely it wasn't self-defense, but rather Candy's anger over wanting what Betty had. Sure, the sex with Alan wasn't exactly fireworks, but Candy admitted she had fallen in love with Alan, and maybe Candy was just completely set on the life she believed she could have had. I don't know I believe Candy's exact version of the events, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But Candy said after the attack, she went to the bathroom and stepped into the bathtub fully clothed. And just let the water run. She dried her arms with a towel, fixed her hair, and then used some towels to try and scrub the floor in the utility room. Unfortunately, there was so much blood that she ended up smearing the blood around as opposed to cleaning it up. So she used the freezer to kind of pull herself up to her feet, which is how her thumbprint got there. And then she just like walked out the front door. When Candy checked her watch, she noticed it stopped at 10.20. She believes her watch stopped when she got it wet in the shower. The morning after the murder, police announced that a bloody footprint had been located at the scene, so Candy used a pair of garden shears to cut up the flip-flops that she had been wearing that day. She disposed of them and the clothing she was wearing that day as well. Leading up to the trial, Candy's defense attorney had Candy examined six times by three different psychiatrists, including Dr. Maurice Green, who used hypnosis to get to the heart of his patient's problems. Dr. Green said that Candy admitted to having a lot of anger towards Betty, and she believed that Betty had ruined her life. Candy said Betty had triggered something in her, which caused Candy to act violently, therefore... It was all Betty's fault. Dr. Green also stated that the overkill that was seen at the crime scene was because Candy had entered a dissociative state, meaning something triggered within Candy that caused a psychological reaction, causing her to become unaware of what she was doing. It was like Candy became a spectator. She was able to see what she was doing, but she wasn't able to stop herself. So while she was aware of what she was doing, she couldn't quite comprehend what she was doing. He said Candy just kind of went berserk for a moment. And yes, prior to the trial, Candy was given a clean bill of mental health and found competent to stand trial. The psychiatrist who testified was Dr. Fred Fazen. Uh, who spent more than 20 hours with Candy, he described her as being in a, quote, detached, mildly depressed emotional state. Dr. Fazen also agreed with Dr. Green's diagnosis of a disassociative reaction. He said it's a form of a neurosis that started in Candy's youth, as she was always concerned about what other people thought of her. Like Dr. Green, Dr. Faison also used hypnosis where he discovered that Candy was when Candy was just four years old. She and an older boy had a race to see who could get to an outdoor water pump first. The winner got to pump the water into a jar. But when Candy lost, she got so angry, she grabbed the jar from the boy and threw it at the pump. The jar shattered and a piece of the glass cut Candy on her forehead. She was taken to a hospital where she was so scared she kicked and screamed, requiring two people to hold her down while she got stitches. Candy's mother entered the room, put a finger to her lips, and shushed her daughter, saying, What will they think of you in the waiting room? And Dr. Faison claims... That this moment caused Candy to suppress any rage she felt in the future, and when Betty did a similar shushing motion, just like her mother, it brought all of the rage out that Candy had been holding for so long. And as someone who is not a trained psychiatrist, I want to ask, are we not concerned about the fact that at just four years old, a child got so angry that she smashed a glass jar Maybe we should explore why the child was so quick to fill with rage. Like maybe that was a sign the child would lash out in another angry way later in their life. Again, I'm no expert. But now I get how trials work and how the defense team is going to do their best to show reasonable doubt and to maybe cast the victim in a not-so-nice light. While the prosecution had testimony that portrayed Betty as a sweet, innocent teacher, the defense brought in former co-workers who claimed that at a previous teaching job, Betty had quote, more than the ordinary amount of conflicts that a teacher has with parents. The witnesses also described Betty as a harsh disciplinarian who didn't communicate well with others. A church member who also took part in that marriage encounter program described Betty as moody and said she had little patience. Candy's defense team also made sure to point out that Candy was a smaller woman, both in height and weight, compared to Betty. Not by a lot, but they brought a woman on the stand named Judy Swain, and they asked Judy if she was the same height as Betty, Judy said yes they then asked if Judy and Betty were the same size and Judy said she was probably a size larger than Betty in his closing arguments defense attorney Don Crowder said quote Judy Swain testified she was approximately the same height and one size larger than Miss Gore mrs. Gore and if you recall mrs. Swain was a very good sized woman I get Dawn was just trying to add to Candy's story that Betty was attacking her and wouldn't let her go. So to suggest that Candy was smaller than Betty adds to their claims of self-defense. But I'll say it, it. I don't care for your tone, Dawn, or for your use of a very good-sized woman. Don't care for that. And speaking of the closing arguments, to describe what don crowder said for the cell- for the defense i can only say what a fucking joke <laughs> maybe because i'm not a lawyer maybe that's why i uh, don't like how he put it but i'm not also going to read the whole thing cuz it's long but i just want to share a few parts with you like how he started quote john steinbeck once wrote no That there are those among us who live in rooms of experience you and I cannot enter. But if you're worried about whether or not Mrs. Montgomery is ever going to be punished in this case, or has not been punished in this case, don't worry about it any longer. Because she lives in that room of experience, and we can't enter it. She lives in it, and she's locked in it, and it now constitutes a cell. A jail cell. Oh, God. And her family has moved in. And Betty Gore threw away the key on June 13th. Calm the fuck down, Dawn. So, uh, also, uh, blaming the victim for how hard the killer's life has been since they hacked a woman to death (laughs) 41 (laughs) times is preposterous. But I'm not done. Another section of Don's over-the-top, eye-rolling dramatics, quote, They've lost their home. They're heavily in debt. They're moving away from this area to start anew. They've been punished. And they'll forever be punished. And to be clear, the Montgomery family did eventually move. But at this point in time, they had zero plans to leave town they absolutely did not lose their home. I, again, I understand <laughs> that this is all part of his game, but I don't care for the game. But it's just its just outright lying uh, as part of his dramatics. I don't care for it. But apparently, while the jury deliberated, Don told Candy he was right at what he said in there. Uh, she needed to leave town because there was no life for her in Wiley anymore. But I like that. It's like, so even then you, so you admit after you're like, oh, that bullshit I said, you have to make it true. (laughs) Of course, Don. So Don also said to the jury, quote, you have an opportunity here to allow a family to stay together. Don't rob two children of their mother. Don't rob a husband of his wife. Candy robbed two children of their mother. She also robbed a husband of his wife. Acting like Candy was a victim in any way (laughs) enrages me to a point I can't fully describe. (sighs) But I'm not quite done with Don and his closing arguments yet. He finished with, quote, To a woman named Gore. An event of massive tragedy took place on Friday the 13th and this case will very nearly end on Halloween. Maybe there's something involved here we don't understand. Something greater than all of us. Candy did it! She admitted to doing it. It wasn't something supernatural or a bunch of crazy coincidences done. It was murder or at the very least manslaughter. I guess what I'm saying is This really struck a chord with me for some reason. I just, uh, I was angry. And then I got more angry uh, because after the eight-day trial, the jury of nine women and three men deliberated for four and a half hours. And on October 29th, Candy Montgomery was found not guilty. And for all of those screaming, what the fuck, I hear you because same. So we're going to take a quick peek into those jury deliberations, because how the fuck did that happen? The answer is their foreman, Bob Snyder. The first thing he said when they got to the room to deliberate was, and I quote, I'm as offended as anyone by the affair Mrs. Montgomery had, and I don't approve of it morally. But I think as far as this decision is concerned, we should put it aside. I, I, it can't affect our thinking in this case. What? The the rest of the jurors agreed. Now, Bob, I'm no expert, but that affair is what investigators and people in the legal system call a motive (laughs) for the crime. (laughs) To exclude it just plays into the defense's hands.
3: Also, just very quickly, it's not up for you to decide what isn't or is or isn't included. That's what happens in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. They show you what is included. And if they tell you not to include something, you listen to them. You don't make the decision.
4: Nope. Yep. Well, if that wasn't maddening enough. Bob then said he didn't believe the brutality of the murder was, quote, A paramount issue in the deliberation. Who is this clown? He said, whether it was a single gunshot or 41 blows with an axe. In the end, it was still just one murder. The The other jurors agreed. The 41 blows were a massive part of this case. It showed the rage and overkill. But if you take that away, along with Candy's potential motive, then the only thing left is she said versus she said, and sadly, Betty Gore wasn't around to give her side of things. So it is no wonder (laughs) that the jury ended up voting the way that they did. Just 30 minutes into their deliberation, they did their first vote. Nine people already had said not guilty. Three said guilty. The big question for the three guilty was, if Candy was truly attacked, why didn't she run? They also questioned if she was truly not guilty, why did she leave the baby by herself? Then they quickly decided, oh, you know what? Candy must have been so stressed by that whole ordeal that she just simply forgot the baby was in the house. The second vote, they all voted not guilty. Now, I'm glad that at least they addressed the fact that Candy knowingly left that baby alone in that house. However, I'm disappointed they were so quick to write it off as, oh, Candy was stressed. And while I get they claimed Candy was out of her mind during the attack, she knowingly left an 11-month-old baby home alone for 12 hours. She knew Alan was out of town and that no one would find her. So why not make some sort of excuse to stop by the house and find the baby yourself? I get she didn't want to be the one who found the body because she'd look guilty. But to leave the baby alone for hours is outright abuse. According to the five-year-old witness, the baby was crying after Candy left the scene. So she was clearly awake. She would have heard the baby, which is hard to forget. The baby was there. Candy could have taken the baby with her and lied to people and say, well, Betty wasn't feeling well. She asked me to watch the baby. Ken, er, Betty was often unwell, so that would have been totally believable. And then she could return to the house with the baby, discover the body. No one will ever convince me it was not devious for Candy to knowingly leave the baby in the house. Even if she was out of her mind in the moment of the attack, she had hours to check and go back on che- go back and check on that child she could have also dropped the child off after picking up her husband so she had someone with her when she discovered the body. And while the jury was so quick to believe that Candy Montgomery was not guilty of murder, they had to decide if Candy was guilty of voluntary manslaughter. She was. She absolutely was. But their first vote for manslaughter was an even split of six guilty, six not guilty. Stop it. And somehow, in the end, ah, oh, they made the decision, you know what? Candy shouldn't spend the rest of her life in prison for this. And look, I get the idea she mentally blacked out and couldn't stop herself. I understand the feeling of over- being overcome with rage in a moment, but it was manslaughter. There is no way it was not. If it was truly self-defense, you hit her once maybe twice to knock her down. And then you fucking run. You run out of that house screaming, I will forever be annoyed at that jury for its ridiculous mistakes. Also, very quickly, in the case file, I will post uh, a photo of the layout of the house to get to the front door. There's no way if she was trying to leave the front door that Betty, if, if Betty had come and closed the front door and prevented her, there's no way they would have ended all the way back at the utility room where that took place. There's no way. She just she's fucking lying.
3: Of course <laughs> this, she is.
4: This is uh, is just madness. It's madness, but the judge in the case was angered by the verdict, saying he believed the jury was gullible and that there was a gross miscarriage of justice. After the not guilty verdict was read, Pat and Candy rushed into each other's arms. Candy's lawyer read a statement in which Candy had said, quote, It seems so pointless. I didn't want him. I kept telling her that, and she put me into that position. It's caused me to lose everything that is important to me, and it hurts. I cannot... With this fucking woman. Candy, you still have your children and your husband. The only thing that was tarnished was your reputation, but I guess you're just saying her reputation was the only thing that mattered to her. Uh, You got off scot-free, so just stop acting like the victim because you absolutely weren't. After After the verdict, Pat and Candy went home where they invited people over for champagne and bologna and cheese sandwiches. The most... random combination i'm offended yeah (laughs) thank (laughs) you so much candy said she was excited to just get back to her normal life you know like nothing ever happened hate mail arrived from across the country including candy's picture from the newspaper cut into tiny pieces and a letter that had uh the word shush written dozens of times all over the paper front and back Even Candy's lawyer got hate mail. He got death threats. So what happened to this crazy cast of characters since the trial ended? To start with, uh, defense attorney Don Crowder ran for governor of Texas in 1986. He lost. Uh, Then he opened a sports bar called Game Day Sport Cafe in 1991, but had to close soon after because he was near bankruptcy. In 1997, Don's brother Barry died in a car accident at the age of 41. After Barry's death, Don's mental health went downhill, and in November 1998, Don sadly took his own life. He was 56 years old. A week after the trial, Pat and Candy Montgomery decided to leave town, and three months later, they moved their family to Georgia. And while they seem to have rekindled their marriage, Pat and Candy divorced four years later. Pat started going by his first name, James, and as of July 2023, his current whereabouts are unknown. Candy became a certified family counselor, working with people uh, specifically who suffer from depression. As of July 2023, Candy remains in Georgia, where she now goes by her maiden name, Wheeler. She is currently 73 years old. Throughout the trial, Betty's husband, Alan Gore, was very supportive of Candy, for reasons I'll never know. But then again, I don't understand a lot of the decisions Alan made, like starting a new relationship about a month after his wife's death. There we go. David and Elaine Williams went to the Gore house two days after the murder to give their condolences. Elaine had been the organist at the Gore's church church two hours, two years earlier. Days later, Elaine called Alan to say that David had moved out and they were getting a divorce. She told Alan she was lonely because David had taken their kids with him. So Alan did what you do, you know, when you're grieving your wife. He invited Elaine over so that they could make dinner together and put the kids to bed together, like a couple or something. But by August 1st, Elaine was spending the night. And for those who aren't the best at math, I'll point out that was 49 days after his wife was brutally murdered. I know everyone grieves in their own way, but this is wild to me. And maybe it means Alan didn't like being alone. You know, like how Betty also didn't like being alone. And yet Alan would get frustrated at her for feeling that way. The prick. Uh, Elaine got divorced. And I assume went by her maiden name, Elaine Clift. And less than three months after the trial, Alan and Elaine got married. Oh, my God. However, they treated Alan and Betty's daughters terribly. The girls said that Alan and Elaine would punish them by forcing the girls to take cold showers and by withholding food. Betty's parents said that there were times when Bethany would come to visit, she would have tufts of her hair had been pulled out of the scalp. Also, Alicia claimed that when she was just 10 years old, Elaine forced her to read a book that graphically described her mother's murder. Oh my God! Yep. By 1984... Alan and Elaine lost custody of Alicia and Bethany, who went to live in Kansas with Betty's parents, Bob and Bertha Pomeroy. They legally adopted the girls in 1988. Alan and Elaine soon divorced, and Alan moved out of state. As of July 2023, Alan is retired and living in Florida. It seems he has since reconnected with his children. Betty and Alan's oldest daughter, Alicia, now goes by the name Lisa. She graduated from Kansas State University with an accounting degree. Lisa got married in 1996. She and her husband have two sons. Bethany graduated from Wichita State University with a teaching degree. She taught for several years before becoming an assistant principal at a school in Las Vegas. Bethany got married in 2011. She and her husband have four children including one who shares a birthday with their grandmother Betty and another who is outright named Betty. Uh, The entire story surrounding Candy and Betty is so wild, it's no surprise it has been played out on the small screen multiple times. First, there was a CBS TV movie in 1990 called A Killing in a Small Town. It stars Barbara Hershey and brian dennehy the movie is described as quote the gory axe murder of one mousy suburban texas housewife by another mousy not a fan of that uh but fun fact the movie was directed by steven gyllenhaal aka maggie and jake's dad i never once considered their dad existing (laughs) so yeah (laughs) never once uh, thought about it uh, Barbara Hershey won a primetime Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Miniseries in September 1990. And just for funsies, uh, other winners at that same Emmy Awards include Murphy Brown for Outstanding Comedy, L.A. Law for Outstanding Drama, and In Living Color for Outstanding Variety Music or Comedy Series. Nothing is more fun than going through uh, past award shows. I stand. Oh, yeah. Um, Also, uh, because again, for funsies, Ted Danson won for his role as Sam Malone. Good old friend of the podcast, although she doesn't know it yet, Candy Bergen won for her role (laughs) as Murphy Brown. Peter Falk won for his role as Columbo. And goddess herself, Bibi Neuwirth won for her role as Lilith Crane. In 2022, Hulu released the miniseries Candy which starred Jessica Biel, Melanie Linsky, and Pablo Schreiber. It won a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Main Title Design. And not to be outdone, Max then released the miniseries Love and Death in 2023. It starred Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons. And while I've never been a fan of studios that release similar stories so close together just for the sake of competition, what I will say is that the hair department at Max was a lot kinder to Elizabeth than the Hulu team was to Jessica. I will say that. Uh, Jesse Plemons was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a miniseries for the 2023 Primetime Emmys, which is supposed to happen in September. Uh, God, at this rate, who knows? Uh, My hope is that I remember to give an update in a future episode, where all I'll say is, he won, or he didn't win, with no context around it, and everyone is just going to have to remember this specific moment that I'm referring to Jesse Plemons and the Emmys. We'll see if I remember. Uh, The entire story is wild. I will never stop raging about the fact that Candy admitted to the murder and never did any jail time. I'm glad she pulled her life together afterwards, but Betty and her daughters deserve justice, Not only did Candy become the subject of multiple miniseries, she also became the butt of a lot of jokes. Just two days after the verdict was announced, three separate women arrived at a Halloween party in Dallas, all dressed as Candy Montgomery. They each carried an axe made of cardboard, and one held a sign that read, "'Whisper to me at your own risk.'" Some reason I've written true crime, man. It's a wild
3: ride. (laughs) Reporting for true crime and cocktails. I'm Christy Oxborough. I did not see that ending coming (laughs) at all. Well, listen, let's take one more break, get another drink, hit the can one more time, and we'll be back with our final thoughts (laughs) on this Candy Montgomery episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
3: Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Candy Montgomery. Um, My God, what a wild ride, even though I know the broad strokes of this case, it never ceases to amaze. And obviously you, you brought a lot of things that I did not know before. Um, yeah, the one night stand that Betty had is so interesting to me because it does feel like whether he admitted it or not, it's somehow justified in Alan's mind this choice to have an affair. I'm completely speculating, but it sure. just feels like given their relationship, given all the details. That's how it kind of comes across. Um, I love that Candy at age 20 was like, I want to be married now, so I'm going to go on multiple dates. Um, One wasn't smart enough. Another wasn't rich enough. Then Pat was excruciatingly boring, but she married him anyway. What a time to be alive. I like that you also only had to go on three dates before finding your person at age 20, but I'm not going to make this about me. (laughs) Well, if you want to
4: use this as anger towards candy, I'm absolutely here for it. I'm angry about it. I'm angry about it. Her whole thing was she just, she said she wanted to be a housewife. You just didn't want to have to work. It sounds like that, doesn't it? That's what it was. And she was like, and I'm going to have eight children. And she got two out and went, fuck, kids are hard. (laughs) Yeah, this is
3: more than I thought it was. Exactly. 100%. I think it's very interesting that Alan called Candy right away. I understand that they were close. I understand that they had had this affair, but it wasn't currently going on at the time. It's just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I'm wildly speculating for a second. Sure. And I know that Alan passed the polygraph. I get it. But it's just interesting to me. Not that I think that they conspired in some larger way to kill Betty. But I'm curious if there's a world in which he knew. Oh, sure. Now, again, there's nothing to back that up at all. But his his being so calm and unaffected and then calling her, I don't know. I'm just curious if perhaps there was that was the additional reason why he ended up going back to the police to say he was having the affair. I don't know. I could be completely wrong and it doesn't really matter, but it's just something interesting to think about. Um, the details about that baby, that is the piece of this case that I think other than of course, the mass overkill, that baby being left screaming for such an extended period of time. I'm going to get into it later, but I'll, I'll put a put in that cause I'm going to get into it in a minute, but it's just so horrific. That poor baby. Um, it was a big it was a big month for movies. You're right. <laughs> I think it's interesting that Candy went over to the house that morning to ask about her sleeping over, about Alicia sleeping over again. I know that she yeah. then had to get the swimsuit, et cetera. but, like, did she? Why couldn't she have just borrowed one of her kids' swimsuits? Why was it imperative sure. that she went over to have that conversation? that's a phone call yeah also couldn't she have just finished
4: at the vacation bible school get the kids in the car draw on on the way home stop there and say hey i can drop her off if not but we were thinking she could stay here and while i'm here i'll grab her swimsuit
3: yeah like it just that to me, to me
4: makes more sense
3: than it wasn't also- as because it wasn't older, an in-person I'll be here there. at noon. Yeah, it wasn't an in-person nece- it wasn't necessary for an in-person visit in my opinion. Because oh, again, agreed. the jo- the daughter's right. I feel like we're close enough in age, there's no reason why they even needed to get her swimsuit. Oh yeah. Logic would say that if she was already letting this kid stay there for these extended periods of time, it's a phone call. And if there yeah. was, you know what I mean? I don't know. It just to, to me And I think, obviously, the reason that's important is that then we just start to speak to, like, motive, etc. Because, is there a world in which Candy goes over there to reveal the affair? Oh. Right? Again, this is all speculation. We don't know, but when we're trying to deal with the details of this case, um, anything's possible, because we'll never know the truth. Uh. The fact that Alan said he would think on the affair. I know. And then I can't. I can't. I, know. I mean, look, in a world, is it like on some hand, like, wow, good for you for just putting it out there, putting out there what you wanted, Candy? I guess. But it was for less than altruistic reasons so it kind of falls apart for me a little bit like that's pretty aggressive yes um anyway uh of course they fell in love of course they did i feel like it's impossible to get into that kind of situation and not um yeah, you know, you, you raise the question, obviously, is it possible that Candy was just jealous, snapped and murdered Betty? I mean, I think that that's the big question. And this brings me to putting my psychologist hat on to yes. dig into the dissociative diagnosis. So here's a few reasons why this doesn't work for me. Now, I personally have suffered from disassociations at, at points in my life. I think most people have probably at some point or another some examples that therapists will give you when talking about this is have you ever for example driven home from somewhere got home and then went oh my god I don't remember that drive at all Hmm. that is dissociating obviously there are many other ways in which this can manifest and can happen but that to me is something that I think most people at some point in your life have experienced correct. Yeah. With that in mind. The the reason that this falls apart for me is because she wouldn't remember. She was going through this whole story with great detail, very detailed about how the exact situation happened. You can't argue. And and I really would love to have conversations with these psychiatrists and these me- these mental health experts because mm. as far as I know, There may be some details that you can remember, but the whole point, and and, and again, sometimes disassociating, you, you can be cognizant of what is happening, but it's the sense of being outside of your body. So it's almost like you're watching from outside of your body, you're watching like a play take place. So with that in mind, yes, in that case, she would be able to remember this. But I just don't buy that she would have that level of detail. Those, kind. when I have personally experienced that sensation of being outside of my body, which I have many times, it's dreamy. It feels dreamy. Like, yes, sure. you can see what's going on, but it's not, the whole point is, is that you're disassociating from reality. Your brain in that moment is trying to for whatever reason that may be happening personally for you, great stress, what have you, your brain is trying to protect you. As we know, we've talked about on this show before, or I have many times, about how that's what personality disorders are. It's your brain trying to protect you from like extreme stress, extreme emotion, all of these kinds of things. So the whole point is, is that you're not gonna be honed into a real life experience. It's not gonna be vivid in my personal experience. Other people maybe would argue that I'm dead wrong. But it just falls apart for me. I also feel like for someone to have an experience where they, in quote self defense, hack another human with an axe 41 times.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, that feels again like we're somewhere else completely. To your point, which I love that you brought up this childhood story of hers, a four-year-old throwing into a blind rage and smashing things and breaking things, et cetera. That's in my opinion, that's something else. And if she was so, if she was legitimately, let's say for a second, she was legitimately so triggered in the moment that she flew into this blind rage and had this thing, I don't think that falls under disassociation. So again, the reason why I'm getting my back up about it is that it's like, what is your real defense here? And a good prosecution would have been poking holes in the fact that it feels like this defense team was just presenting a poo-poo platter of potential psychological reasons for her to have committed this crime. And in my opinion, they don't jive. (laughs) Is it that she had this triggering (laughs) experience causing her to have a blind rage? Is it that she was completely disassociating at the time? Is it, you know, there's so many different layers here that that's, again, where it falls apart for me. And it's a shame that the prosecution couldn't poke greater holes in that just to prove that it's like, they're throwing anything at the wall and this jury, for whatever reason, is like (laughs) buying into it. Or again, in my opinion, just had a foreman that was drunk on power and absolutely not doing his job properly. Um, But again, the only other thing I want to speak to, and I can only speak to my own experiences, obviously with dissociation, quite often, if you are having one of those moments, you feel yourself slipping away, et cetera. The things that can bring you back to reality are things like, loud noises, strong smells. Um, There's different techniques that you can use personally. She wouldn't have been employing that at the time, I'm sure, in this scenario. But my point being is a baby screaming, dogs barking, dogs barking, which she, I believe, mentioned. Yep. That she heard them. That's something that can bring you back to reality, right? And I'm not to be completely graphic, but this is a true crime show, I think the smell of blood when there is oh. that much blood around you, on you, everywhere, that's going to bring you back to reality too. Why is that an important detail to me? Because that says to me she didn't disassociate her way out that door not thinking about that baby. She heard that baby. If she's also, by the way, jumping in the shower, that's another thing that can bring you That's another. – I've had that recommended to me before. It's like if you feel yourself disconnecting – Run your face underwater. These are all grounding techniques. This is the joke or or or, or tools that can help you ground yourself, um, whether you're doing it deliberately or not. But again, loud noises, strong smells, having a shower. These are all things that would have brought her back to reality. And I do not buy, if we're to believe that she was having this episode, I do not buy that she didn't deliberately leave that baby. Sorry. She absolutely I don't. did. She absolutely, she absolutely did. did. And I would say that the, the psychological, um, whatever you want to call it, science or whatever, the, the psychological, uh, information data that we have would suggest that there's no way. I know you could say, but Lauren, she was out of her mind or whatever. I just don't buy that. She didn't hear that baby and go, I'm going to leave it. I think she made that choice. Oh, she absolutely did. Cause she, I'm sure. There was some
4: part of her, even that could have been like, "Here's the baby," and goes, "Oh shit! Well, you know what? A neighbor will hear. Her. I'll leave. Someone will come in. They'll find the baby. They'll find the body. I wasn't here." Yeah. But also, you you walked out the uh, walked out the front door. You didn't it's exactly very callous. hide yourself.
3: It's very callous. Yeah. It's very callous. It's it's. Again, and I know what you're, you could be saying, why does that matter, Lauren? The whole thing that matters here is that we're talking about state of mind. We're talking about um, motive. Again, is there perhaps, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not one to throw around diagnoses, I'm not an expert, but is there a narcissistic personality disorder happening here? I know we throw around that term a lot, but unfortunately, the truth is, is that a lot of people who kill people have narcissistic traits. That's just a fact, folks. That's why it comes up a lot. Um, But, you know, I think some of her behavior, some of her kind of like thrill-seeking behavior, she said herself to her friend that she wanted to have an extreme sexual relationship. She went and clinically asked someone to their face, do you want to have an affair with me? That's not what I would describe as typical human behavior. I'd say that's pretty specific. She has a history and childhood of these rages. Um, so to me, you know, it just speaks again. Even the way she approached dating, all jokes aside, I want to get a husband. I want to whatever. So I'm just going to do this. Well, this guy's boring, but he's going to give me what I want. Like these are not um, choices that seem connected to uh, feelings. These feel like choices that are disconnected from yeah. feelings, which would then also make it easier for her to walk away from a screaming baby, which I would go out and go so far as to say, I think that's pretty hard for anybody to walk away from, even in that scenario. I don't, I, I just yes. think a lot of people, regardless of gender, I think that's tough to walk away from and not be riddled with guilt, try and find another way to get that baby out of there. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. It all speaks to again who is this person <laughs> that committed this crime? Even the choice for her in life to then become a counselor feels narcissistic to me. Sure. It's like it's like you're you think you're so much smarter, you got away with murder, you know because of your psychological ailments, so then it's like, I don't know, like again, that's all speculation, but you know um. I have to say you referring to Dawn, her lawyer, as Dawn just made me think of Dave Foley in uh, Kids in the Hall Brain Candy referring to Mark (laughs) McKinney's character as Dawn. He says it so many times and it always makes (laughs) me laugh. So it was making me laugh as you were doing it. Um, What else? Oh, and then I just have to say Alan getting remarried to this woman Elaine and then them horribly treating those children that way hmm I have opinions. Yep. One, it speaks to his character, which make, brings me back to, I don't know if he didn't know about the murder. Honestly, I'm like, it is a bold thing when your ch- your wife has been brutally murdered yep, for you to get into a relationship very quickly. You were in a very public situation um, for a horrific reason. And then yep. the fact that you turned on your own children in that way, again, mm-hmm. doesn't feel typical to me. If it was that it was this other woman's influence and you just went along with it, it's no better. It's no better in my mind. No One would think that typically people in these scenarios would want to keep their children safer, would want to keep their children closer to them, would want to try sure. and comfort their children throughout all of this the fact that it swung so wildly speaks again to me to his personality, which then takes me back to he did agree in a very non-organic manner to have a long long standing affair with this woman. Um, he was very, as you pointed out, irritated by Betty's needs in terms of not wanting to be left alone, et cetera. Uh, the fact that he was completely non-emotional when he found out that his wife had been brutally murdered and their child had been in the house at the time unattended for 12 plus hours. Yep. Again, I, I am only speculating, but it just speaks to, I don't know. And the fact that he also um, supported Candy through the trial. Yeah. What the fuck? Who's yep. that guy? Oh, yeah. He treated his own children so badly after their mother's murder that they got taken from him. Jesus Christ. Like, that is so dark. To me, there is a layer to that person that I feel like we don't even know the truth about in any of this. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I just had to say, too, the fact that he and Elaine got married so quickly, Mm -hmm. so quickly, and then divorced. I just wrote down, "Welp, hope it was worth it. Hope it was worth getting married to that woman who abused your children and then seemingly you also abused your children. You got your children taken away and then you divorced yep. four years later. I hope that was worth it to you. Yep. Garbage behavior. I can't. Yes. Barbara Hershey, shout out to Beaches. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to shock you. I've never seen it. Well, there's a brown haired one and a red headed one and uh, they're lifelong friends. Hmm. <laughs> So I, I'm the bet. I'm the bet. Well, I think personality wise, I'm the bet. Interesting. Yeah. You ha- I think you need to watch it. And then just be <laughs> prepared to be destroyed. Destroyed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a tear duck cleaner. Oh boy. Okay. Oh, big time. Big time. I've seen that movie probably oh. 50 times, every time. Wow. Powerful. I I mean, I'll write it down. Beaches, all right,
4: watch I mean, Beaches Bette Midler's so that character it. is
3: literally an actor in it, so again, it's... Oh, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Childless. I'm giving away too much. Did she uh,
4: write really intense pro- poetry about the other?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they cover it, but let's just say I know she did. <laughs> um, shout out to In Living Color, one of the reasons why I wanted to get into comedy. I was obsessed hey. with that show. I love that show so much. Also, Different Time, folks yeah, a lot of stuff done on that show wildly inappropriate now arguably inappropriate then i am not defending the content i'm merely saying that the performers on that show definitely inspired me and uh specifically jim carrey doing fire marshal bill i used to uh make my family uh watch me do my own fire marshal bill impression but look at me now hey um the finally, people dressing as candy at Halloween. To your point, true crime. What a roller coaster of a genre we're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wildly insensitive, feels wrong on so many yeah. levels. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, yeah, listen, that's that's what I got for you. I don't know if you have any other uh, thoughts or feelings, but what a wild ride. Uh, I just really loved that you used the term poo poo platter <laughs>
4: earlier.
3: <laughs> I'm pissed. I'm like, don't throw oh, yeah. around, don't throw around psychology <coughs> like that. Like. And I, and I, it's, I would say the same to the, the experts. I'm like, I, I would, I would also have to say fairly, I should probably sit down and like read transcripts if, if they were available. Cause I'm just fascinated to know how they were kind of arguing different things at the same time. Oh yeah. Is it I, a rage disorder? Is it, you know, is it full dissociating? Like what are we talking mm-hmm. here? Oh, there's, there is
4: no chance that this was self-defense in any way.
3: Well, because it In doesn't add up. Anyway, was it that you were being threatened with an axe or was it that you were triggered into this deep psychological break that you were having? I know some people could say, couldn't it be both? I guess, but it just feels like, again, they were all over the map with this defense. Which yeah. is it? And also, if it was true uh, self defense, why yeah. wouldn't she be running from that house, calling the police at the time if it was true self defense? You also did cover it up. You did run away yeah. and tried to make it seem like you didn't do it. Yep. Some could argue some people do that in the moment, but I just feel like if in a moment of true self-defense, you murdered one of your best friends, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. um the whole self-defense thing will
4: forever eat away at my soul, because it's, it's not it's not a thing. Self-defense is a thing. In this case, it's not a thing. No. There's just no way that she did it. Like, there's no way that that was the response. And also, uh, if that's what happened because someone shushed you, had you literally not been, you've never heard anybody shush you in the 26 years between when that moment happened when you were four and Betty shushing you at 30? At Great no point. point in there.
3: At well, no and point also, in there, some,
4: you heard someone say shh, and then you lost your mind.
3: But let's also not forget, one of these psych experts was saying yeah. that when they had put her through hypnosis, she was talking about how Betty had ruined her life. Yeah, and so, how much rage she had towards Betty. Right. So again, I'm like, what is it, guys? What is it? Because that, to me, doesn't make it sound like she's innocent at all. No, if she's admitting, and a psych expert is admitting, yeah, she she believed that Betty ruined her life and she had a ton of rage pent up against her. Well, oh, then that sounds to me like a little thing called motive. And yeah. even oh, if... but the jury doesn't talk about motive. <laughs> <laughs> even if we are to believe that she didn't premeditate the murder, which... I yes. could believe that. Yes. Whether I do or I don't doesn't matter. I could believe that. Sure. That is possible. Then to your point, this is a manslaughter charge. A hundred percent. If At the bare minimum, she admitted to doing it. Yep. A psych expert testified that she had great rage towards this person. Yep. That alone. Mm-hmm. That alone is manslaughter. Yep. The only difference would be, and the only reason why I could see them saying it wasn't premeditated is the murder weapon originated in that house. It's not like she went and bought a right. gun and went to the house. That proves premeditation. So I can sure. I can understand not not finding them not finding Candy guilty on the the murder charge. I get that, and and truthfully, that might be actually the right call, but the manslaughter charge is not the right call. If they can't prove the premeditation, I get it. But they don't need to prove the manslaughter because it just is. Like, I don't know how to wrap my head around it. Yeah. She admitted to killing somebody. Yep. There is a psych expert saying she had great rage pent up against this woman. Yep. Oh,
4: it... It will never make sense to me. Um. I I don't believe... That it was premeditated in any way. I could see it being, yeah, she was angry at her because at one point she outright admitted, I didn't want the affair to end. I knew it had to, but I didn't want it to. Yeah. Because she needed, she needs the affair because she needs that excitement. It was always like in her youth, it was like, she's bored. She needs excitement in her life. She's going to do whatever for excitement. And sneaking around behind your husband's back, of course, she's going to find that exciting. It's why she started an affair immediately after that affair ended. But I don't believe she showed up there thinking, you know what? I'm absolutely going to kill this woman. I think she showed up and Betty was thrown off because she didn't expect to see her. And she was probably a bit flustered because she... Just wanted to like, she just put the baby down. She just wanted five seconds to herself. The door goes and it's like, here we go. I don't even get two seconds. They talk briefly. It comes up of, oh, she's worried she's pregnant again. She's going on this trip to Europe. Very excited about it. All of that. And I could see Candy being like, how are you upset? You're having another child with this man who I'm in love with. You get to go to Europe on a trip without your kids, whereas her second honeymoon trip that uh, Candy and Pat took involved their children, and it was some, like, they drove a state over and went somewhere. Like, still fun time, I'm sure, but compared to a European vacation without the children, those are two wildly different trips Especially when you're considering it your second honeymoon. So I could see there being intense jealousy and her being like, how, how are you upset? You have everything. And I have nothing because by then she had, didn't have an affair on the, on the go. She has her, uh, no offense, Pat, boring ass fucking husband. So she's like, okay, well, (laughs) he's not going to hear this, but it's just like, she admitted herself. She found him incredibly boring. But assuming there was just the three men, there may have been others that she didn't mention, but the one didn't make enough money because, again, she wanted to be a housewife. So one didn't make enough money for that to be possible, so he wasn't an option. Another one, he wasn't educated enough, which I assume meant to have a job at the level to get paid so she could stay home. And then the third one made enough money had a solid job, she'd be able to be a housewife. Well, I guess even boring, I guess here we go. And then it pissed her off because she had to get a job because he went back to school instead of doing his regular job. And it was a whole thing. Uh, But in the end, she was a stay-at-home mom, which is what she wanted to be. I just, I really think something came up in that conversation of Betty saying, I think I'm pregnant. And she was just like, you're getting everything. If you're pregnant again, he's never going to leave you. He's going to stay with you. I've lost him for good. Why are you so upset? You're getting everything. And I think she just snapped. I don't know if she went into the grad, like if she went and grabbed that axe, but I just don't believe that Betty went and grabbed it because if you're angry and you're like oh i'm mad at this person because they did whatever the kitchen's right there you can't tell me there's not a knife you couldn't have pulled to get the
3: axe is insane question for you with the layout of the house where was the axe in relation to the bathing suit that candy was going to get oh well uh i have
4: a map of the layout of the house which i'll tell you comes in handy so I'll do my best to to show you so you can see the little yes. map of the house. Yes. What kills me is where the, you can see where the body is. Right. The front door is way down there at the bottom. Oh, yeah. It's far. She's saying she went all the way to the front door, and then somehow they managed to go all the way back. Was there blood? There was a, um, not Throughout enough blood. Throughout the house? That... There wasn't enough. Most of it was in the utility room. There was some on the wall by in the living room by the chairs. Um, the axe would have been in the garage and the bathing
3: suit was in the utility room. So was, but, is, which is right off of the garage. Yes. So one it, could argue, isn't it possible that when she went to get the bathing suit, she also grabbed the axe? It is more than possible. She went in that
4: room, grabbed the bathing suit. The door could have been open to the garage she looks and she can see the axe and she's seething because she's like you get everything how are you possibly angry about this sees the axe and is like i'm gonna
3: make her pay it just does it i agree with you that it it doesn't again feel like typical human behavior for them to be in this argument and candy to go wait a minute and then walk through a room and through another room and into the garage and get the axe and come back. Like, it doesn't, that doesn't feel like typical behavior. To your point, there's knives in the kitchen. So you would think that if she was in this frenzied moment and wanting to threaten Candy, she could just pick up a butcher knife or something that's right there. Um, We also don't even know that she went, that Candy went to get the bathing suit when she said she did. That's true. She may have picked up the, the bathing suit for the first time on her way out of there. We don't know. Again, we're going mm-hmm. by we're going by the killer's description of events. Correct. And that again, to me, it's just so wild. And I see your point completely. I didn't know all these jury details um prior. It's so maddening. It's so maddening yeah. that she has done absolutely no jail time for this. Oh yeah. Again, you also- if she's would had... go ahead. Yeah.
4: Couldn't you also see um, Betty being like, oh, God, I might be pregnant and Candy just like, I can't stand this. I can't stand this. I'll get the bathing suit. Sees the axe, picks it up, comes in the room and goes, oh, yeah, well, I've been fucking your husband. That's what I'm saying. And then the two of them get into a fight, which is how there ends up being the struggle. But again, it was she hit her in the back of the head with the ham with the with an axe. And she went down and supposedly got up, went to the front door, but there weren't like blood
3: droplets. I also want to recreate door. that. How does it happen? Mm-hmm. How does it happen that you're tussling? And then Thank Candy, you. you're very welcome. Candy, who we've been we've been told the time and again, is, is just a tiny person, tiny wisp woman, of wisp yeah. of a woman. How yeah. is it that you're tussling and then you somehow pick up an ax And then somehow get behind her to get the trajectory to hit her in the back of the head. Yeah. You can't hit her in the, like, Mm -hmm. an axe has a long handle. You can't reach around, like, the physics don't make sense. You wouldn't be able to reach it around and hit her in the back of the head. Unless she had her back to you. I'd also love to know, uh,
4: she said she gripped the blade of the axe and they tugged on it back and forth and yet. No injuries to her hands. Isn't that weird? I can't. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, fantastic work as always. A truly confounding case. Uh, just one for the ages, for sure. I, again, it's not surprising there's been so many movies made about it. Um, yeah. We thank you so much for your work as always. Exceptional. 12 out of 10. Oh, oh, that's high praise. Okay. I. Dole it out where I see fit. And we thank you, dear listeners, for coming with us on this wild ride. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. On Twitter, at Not Detectives. If you'd like some more content, go over to patreon.com slash Cocktails for our subscription-based service over there where we offer bonus episodes. You get to vote on one episode a month we cover on this feed of the show. And of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next
4: True Crime and Cocktails, the McDonald's
3: Monopoly scandal. This, of course, was our June patrons poll pick. Uh, There was a vote for a a heist, a scandal. A scandal, scandal. yeah. And this is what we've chosen. And I am so excited for you to delve into this because I am obsessed with this case. And I just want to say right off the bat, there is one player in this story that I desperately want to play in a fictionalized uh, version of this story, and I can't wait for you to try figure out who it is. Oh, that's... <laughs> You've just upped it. You've that's upped the ante of this. I can't wait. I yeah. can't wait to uh, figure out who it is. 100%. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll see you next week, dear listeners. Uh, and as always, we thank you so much for your support. It means everything to us in the true crime and cocktails world. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Candace Bergen. Oh yeah. Good night, Keanu Reeves.